This is The Resilient Life, where we believe that every human will struggle in this life. Our challenge is to struggle well. I'm Ryan Mannion. I lost my brother to war, my mom to cancer, and I'm the daughter of a retired Marine. I'm also a wife, mom, author, and president of one of the nation's leading veteran service organizations. Join me and some incredible guests as we explore the value of struggling well through life's inevitable challenges. Welcome to another episode of the Resilient Life Podcast. I am truly honored to have with us today, General David Petraeus. Uh, General Petraeus, welcome to the Resilient Life. Good to be with you. Thank you. Yeah. So, you know, you're here with us today because six months ago, I put a post up on LinkedIn um, with my thoughts on the anniversary of the 20 year anniversary of the invasion of Iraq and, and the start of the Iraq war. And, you know, I shared my personal views on what that day meant and how that course of action changed the trajectory of my life. Um, because my brother went off it, he fought in that war and ultimately gave his life in that war. And, um, you know, I was a little bothered when I wrote that, uh, I woke up that morning really reflective of the last 20 years and, and filled with gratitude for this all volunteer force that has stepped up to serve so honorably over the last 20 years. And, and every newspaper article, every social media post that I saw was based on not kind of honoring and celebrating the the brotherhood and sisterhood of the men and women who served, but more so a debate on the legitimacy of the war. And so I kind of put my thoughts down around that and and you commented. Um, somehow it hit your 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 newsfeed. You saw my post and you commented and thanked me for my thoughts. And so, you know, for me, when I look back at Iraq 20 years later, and I've I've heard a lot of the things that you've had to say, but I'd love to kind of get your insight and your opinion on 20 years later, um, a little bit around your thoughts about where we are today. Well, where we are today, where and what? Well, what? I mean, I, I think we're... We, Respective to, you know, again, 20 years ago, you know, when you look back, when when you sat back in on that March day, I think it was March 19th, right? When you look back 20 years from that day, like, where do you sit? How does it sit with you today? Well, I feel in many respects the same as I've felt for many, many years, which is that um, it was a privilege to be part of a mission larger than self. Uh, you can debate the policy that we were implementing. You can debate some of the follow-on decisions. Actually, some of those you can't debate. I mean, we should not have fired the Iraqi military without telling them what their future was, and we shouldn't have done debathification without an agreed reconciliation uh, plan and process. Um, but again, all that notwithstanding, um, and, and folks can argue about that, as you noted, uh, many have looking back 20 years later, I look at it from the perspective of someone who is privileged to command America's sons and daughters in Iraq as a two star, three star, four star and even four star again, uh, because I went to Central Command after commanding the surge in Iraq. Uh, and then engaged even beyond that um, when I was the director of the CIA. 
uh, toward the end of where when we pulled our combat forces out of Iraq uh, for the first time, actually noting that we obviously had to put them back in some years later because the Islamic State was allowed to reconstitute. But again, it was just an extraordinary privilege to be part of this effort with other Americans who had raised their right hand uh, at a time of war, as your brother had, um, knowing that they're going to go off to combat, they're going to be asked to deploy for their country in the wake of the 9-11 attacks. Um, and by the way, re-enlisting to do that in many, many cases subsequent to that as well. Uh, and so in these two-star commands, the command of the 101st Airborne Division went back pretty quickly after that as the three-star to establish the Multinational Security Transition Command Iraq, the train and equip mission, uh, and then to go back to command the surge in Iraq, then Central Command and so forth. Um, again, these are members of my tribe, if you will, and I'm just very proud to have been uh, a member of that tribe and actually to have led it. Um, at various junctures and in increasing positions of responsibility. Um, and I reflect, for example, at near the end of the surge at the 18 month mark of that particular tour, I was privileged to be the re-enlistment officer uh, for what we believe was the largest re-enlistment ceremony in our history. 1,215 soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, all with a right hand in the air reciting the oath after me uh, in, how ironically, in one of Saddam's former palaces inside the dome. In fact, there's a great picture on the front page above the fold of the New York Times the, the next day. It was a sea of uniforms. And as I looked out at those men and women uh, who, again, knew that they were going to be asked to come back to combat, because that was the period where we were doing, in fact, the Army was doing 15-month tours in combat because we needed the additional time to ensure that the surge would succeed. And it did. It drove violence down by nearly 90 percent. Uh, and by the way, one of the initiatives that was so important to that, of course, was that which was spearheaded uh, by your brother in Anbar province and, and F, during which he was tragically killed. Uh, but in many respects, his legacy was the reconciliation program that we ultimately pursued, a very important part of the overall surge campaign. But again, to come back to that question that you asked, and as I recall, what I commented on your post was, you know, for those of us who are in uniform, uh, we'll leave the policy debates to others. I'll let historians argue about the decision to invade or not, the intelligence uh, on weapons of mass destruction and so forth. Uh, for me, it was about, again, being privileged to be performing a mission larger than self with other individuals who felt the same way uh, at a time of real consequence for our country. Um, and again, that's where I think I, I tend to leave that. Um, again, those individuals that were re-enlisting, they weren't doing it for the stock options, you know. And, and by the way, it was a period, if you remember July 4th, 2008, the economy was still very, very strong by all metrics. We didn't realize that the uh, financial crisis was going to ensue after that. So from afar, it looked as if there were great opportunities for them, a period of quite low unemployment back in the United States. So what they were doing was, again, signing up to continue to perform a mission larger than self, again, knowing that they're going to be asked to go back to a combat zone, either Iraq or Afghanistan, 
Uh, they felt privileged to do it with others who felt the same way. And by and large, uh, they were aware that Americans, regardless of their views on the policies we were implementing, appreciated what it was that we were doing in uniform. And, and I certainly never begrudged the fact that, you know, we went to war and they went to the mall or to the Super Bowl. That's why we went to war, right. uh, was to enable them to do that. Um, and I think by and large, that's how most folks felt. So, you know, those are the emotions 20 years hence, still, again, feeling that our men and women in uniform performed nobly, um, sought to do the right thing in very, very tough uh, environmental conditions against a very tough enemy, often brutal, barbaric even, uh, enemy, uh, an enemy that employed suicide uh, bombers and so forth uh, that had a very low regard for the lives of, uh, of many of their fighters. Uh, and yet our men and women performed magnificently. We were not without mistakes. We had missteps. We had episodes that are indelibly bad. Uh, Abu Ghraib would probably rank at the top of that list tragically. But what we did is we sought to learn from those experiences. We always sought to uh, prevent uh, similar uh, mistakes and missteps. Uh, and, and again, that says a lot about not just the each of the individuals that we had in uniform, it says a lot about the culture that we tried to build in our forces, uh, which, by the way, as you look at the contemporary war uh, in Ukraine, where the Russian culture is clearly the exact opposite of that. Yeah. And, you know, I you touched on the surge and I'll share with you, um, you know, that was not looked at there was a lot of different opinions to to that um tactic and i actually have well, a lot of people doubted it again of course most, yeah. most of those between me and the president doubted it right and right. i uh, was at my parents house. lots of questioning about it yeah i happened to be in my parents house the night that um president bush announced the surge uh came on you know seven o'clock special special announcement from the president He's behind the podium and my dad's cell phone rings and it's my brother calling from Iraq and he's telling my dad, dad, this is exactly what we need. So he was very supportive of it. He believed in it. Um, and, you know, and I appreciate, you know, just hearing that those efforts, you know, unfortunately he gave his life in the process of it, but like it, it was that specific encounter was a success. Right. The surge is largely considered a success when you look back on the scope of the, the 20 years that we spent there. Um, and I think about, you know, one of the things you were interviewed, I think it was on ABC Nightly News uh, six months ago, and, and they asked you some questions around uh, the Iraq war. And one of the questions that was posed to you was, was it worth it? And I found that so interesting because people have said that to me many times. and. They don't mean it offensively, but they'll say, you know, well, was it worth it that your brother was over there? Did, did he die in vain? And 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 your answer, the way you answered that question was exactly how I feel. And, and you said like that, that question, that answer is not mine to make, you know, it's it's not mine to make was was it worth it? And so um, you talked about the pride that the families of the soldiers uh, felt for 
the their loved ones who gave their lives. And, and it's the same sentiments that my family feels. Like we know that my brother was over there, believed in the mission, believed in what he was doing, um, and and believed in the mission set by men like you who were over there helping to set that directive, right? And so we're we're filled with tremendous sadness that he is no longer here. He was my best friend, you know, my brother, but that we knew that he died doing what he believed in. You know, there was a belief in in who stood to the left and right of him. Um, and it was it was much different than the the policy decisions that were being made here in Washington, DC. Yeah, again, I think you have to leave the policy decisions to the policymakers. Um, and you have to leave, you know, the judgment of history to the historians and the pundits and you know the various news interviewers and all the rest of that. I what I focused on, as you'll recall, and as you recounted, was that our men and women, again, took an oath uh, of enlistment or office uh, at a time of war, knowing that they were going to be asked to deploy uh, and to serve our country in combat, and they still did it. They performed nobly uh, in the vast majority. Again, yes, there are individual cases that, uh, again, uh, did not re reflect that kind of uh, behavior on the battlefield. But again, the vast, vast majority of our soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and by the way, our diplomats, spies, development workers, everyone else engaged in this, uh, performed very, very impressively, very selflessly, courageously, uh, with initiative, with drive, with, with enormous courage. Uh, again, that's how I see it. And Again, I'll leave it to the historians and the pundits to debate. Uh, again, was it worth it? You know, did well. We did re remove a, a terrible kleptocratic uh, dictator uh, who had invaded his neighbors, two of his neighbors, and caused untold damage to his country. Certainly, the outcome has been imperfect. Uh, there have been periods where it looked quite positive, including the three and a half years after the surge, during which the Iraqi security forces did maintain security, uh, even as we were drawing down in a, in a, in a thoughtful and uh, correct manner, frankly, based on the conditions on the ground. I wish we had not pulled all of our combat forces out, but that's it for another moment and another debate. Uh, but it was the Iraqis who undid. Uh, it was the prime minister who, within 24 hours after pulling our soldiers out, uh, who took really fateful, highly sectarian actions that tore the fabric of society apart again, alienated the Sunnis again, the same Sunnis that we had worked so hard to bring back into the fabric of society and to convince that their lot in life would be better if they supported us and then supported the Iraq, the new Iraq rather than uh, tacitly or actively opposing it. Um, so, But again, these are all the issues that can be debated I look at it from the perspective of one who just, again, felt hugely privileged to be part of this, uh, indeed to lead it uh, in three different commands as a general, all four different commands as a general officer, when you include central command. Uh, and and again, quietly proud of that. And I think all of those who participated uh, should be quietly proud of that. I think their families should be uh, proud of what it, what it is that their sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers and so forth did during that time and and those who lost a loved one in combat um, shouldn't have any doubts about the importance of what that individual is doing, even if again, others want to debate 
the policies that we were implementing. Yeah. And, you know, what what I struggle with now a little bit is you look at here we are 20 years later. Um, I don't think there's probably very few that are that think our withdrawal from Afghanistan was uh, a success. Right. And so you look at the combination of we are now in a in a place where, you know, we're not engaged in this global war on terrorism and our military recruitment and retention is is way down. Um, what are the factors that you think play into that? And do you think that the the last 20 years were a contributing factor to that? Well, you've raised a number of issues. Uh, and first, with respect, we are still very much engaged in the fight against Islamist extremists, uh, just in a very different way. And sure. uh, we still have several thousand troops uh, in Iraq and in northern Syria. Uh, and frankly, because of the advent of drones and other capabilities that we didn't have back in the beginning of the war, at least not in large numbers, what we're able to do uh, is to support local partners, host nation partners, Iraqi security forces, or in the case of Syria, the Syrian Democratic Forces, uh, as they combat uh, the Islamic State, which now is no longer an army the way it was when they established the caliphate in northeastern Syria and northern Iraq. Uh, now they're essentially in small insurgent elements and, and some terrorist cells. Uh, and so we are able to help our Iraqi partners and Syrian partners quite effectively, frankly, um, and we've learned, of course, the hard way that if you take your eye off extremist groups like this, that they can reconstitute and they can cause problems, as was the case, again, after we withdrew our combat forces, when the prime minister undertook these highly sectarian actions that alienated the Sunnis and his forces took their eye off the Islamic State, focused on these Sunni demonstrators, Islamic State was able to reconstitute and do what it then did, achieving the first ever caliphate uh, in the history of these Islamist extremist groups. We're also still engaged uh, in, again, quite small numbers in East Africa, uh, in North Africa, Northwest Africa, and so forth, and then some other places uh, around the world. And but I don't these... want to, not to interrupt you, I don't want to take away from, I, I'm, I'm not, I certainly understand that, but the average American does not. You, you yeah, know. no. And, and again, we're not engaged in big operations where right. we don't have 165,000 American men and women on the ground in Iraq, as we did when I was privileged to command the surge and so forth. And 250,000 in the greater Middle East when I took command of U.S. Central Command. So you're, you're exactly right. And interestingly, I think, again, now when you turn to the issue of recruiting, I think there's a number of factors uh, in the challenges that we're seeing there. One of them is the fact that I think people do enlist or or seek a commission um, when they can serve their country in a very, very meaningful manner, which, and there's nothing more meaningful than doing so in combat. Right. Uh, that is obviously not what the majority, the vast majority of individuals are going to do, given that we have relatively few soldiers who are still engaged in these kinds of actions around the world. Uh, and so it's going to be a bit more of a Cold War era kind of world, albeit with very important missions, uh, deterrence in the Indo-Pacific region uh, with respect to, to China, with respect to North Korea, uh, and then the 
actions that we're taking to shore up deterrence for NATO uh, with respect to Russia, in addition to helping the Ukrainians to preserve their independence, sovereignty, and survival. Um, so, but again, that's one factor. Um, another factor is that the uh, though the number of those who qualify to serve uh, has gone down farther uh, as well. So there's a combination of factors that it, one has to do of, of all things with the physical condition. And, you know, if an individual can't meet the, the physical test uh, and standards, uh, that's a problem. And fewer can as a percentage of our society. It's a factor of obesity and a variety of other uh, issues that our society is dealing with also in some cases, drug use and, and mental health. Um, so you have that issue. And then of that small subset that does actually qualify to serve, can meet the standards, uh, then you have an issue with propensity to serve, which has gone down. And again, perhaps because uh, we're not at war, there's not a this huge mission larger than self, such as we had during the height of the post 9-11 wars. Uh, and then there's other issues that involve some of the partisan politics and the way that, you know, the accusations of wokeness and this kind of thing uh, that all of together, I think, as always, there's usually never a single explanation or factor that can uh, explain why something has happened. It's usually multiple factors. And I think those are among the factors that are most important uh, in reducing the pool of individuals who qualify and have a propensity to serve uh, and then actually are willing to raise their right hand and take that oath. Do you, can you pinpoint one or two ways that we can look at raising recruitment rates? I mean, we're looking at all the sure. facts. Oh yeah, there's a whole host of different, and, and the services are pursuing these. Um, in fact, I think it will be the case that only one service will meet uh, it's one element of one service. The Marine Corps, I think, will yes. meet its uh, recruiting uh, numbers. Uh, the other services will not. Um, and they're taking a variety of different uh, approaches. Um, there's a host of ways that you can bring someone in and help him or her get in shape sufficiently to qualify. Uh, so there's a pre-boot camp boot camp. Uh, you can have higher bonuses. Of course, another challenge, I, in fact, I should have highlighted this, of course, is that we're at near historic low unemployment uh, over the past 50 years. And I should have put that probably uh, right at the top of that list as well. So you're competing with businesses that don't have enough of these same people that we're all trying to attract. And so, again, if you're in an all-volunteer force, uh, you may have to raise the recruitment, the enlistment bonuses. You may have to raise some of the other uh, incentives. There can be other, uh, again, inducements, if you will, certain training, certain uh, education, uh, and so forth. And there's a host of these initiatives that are being pursued uh, that I'm aware of. And, and the Army, uh, my service, of course, is, is pursuing a number of those. Uh, but it's a very serious issue, obviously. You've got to man the force. Uh, you've got to attract the men and women to uniform uh, who can fill out the ranks and do so competently uh, in good physical condition uh, with good morale and all the rest of that, all the components that make for a great soldier. You know, we used to, we used, I, I'd say probably about 10 years ago, a big, a big term was the civilian military divide. 
right? And and we would, and there was a lot of conversation between the 99% that served, or excuse me, the 99% that didn't serve and the 1% that did. And so, you know, we often talk about at the Travis Manning Foundation, what role our veterans can actually play in, in recruiting. Sure. Yep. And yeah. No, I think this is an important point. And, and again, that would be yet another factor is that many Americans perhaps don't know someone who has served. And there is this, again, when you talk about propensity to serve, there's a much higher propensity to serve in families uh, whose mothers and fathers have served or other relatives have served than in families where there has not uh, been service and where they don't even know anyone that has served and can provide that kind of example. I mean, if you think about why we do a lot of what we do. People ask me all the time, why did you go to West Point? Well, you know, people do, they want to be like Mike. And to me, Mike was the cadet seven miles from my hometown was West Point. Uh, it was the 50% of the people to whom I delivered a newspaper every morning who were either West Point graduates, staff and faculty at West Point, um, veterans of, uh, that served in some capacity uh, and so forth. So if you don't even know someone, I mean, how can you be like someone that you don't know? Right. So again, that's yet another factor. And and I think it's a serious one. I mean, why did our son uh, who went to MIT to be a computer scientist uh, raise his right hand in his second year to join ROTC and then served eight years uh, in the army, in, including several tours in Afghanistan, including one in which he was a rifle platoon leader in an airborne brigade when I was the commander. And then he went on to, to special ops units. Uh, yeah, I think he did it because his father had served, his two uncles had served, his grandfather had served. So I guess that's probably what explains it. So you've put your finger on yet another issue. And there is a role for veterans very much in that regard to try to acquaint others uh, with, again, how special it is to serve, uh, what a great privilege it is to wear the uniform of our country. Uh, and to do so in important missions. So let's say, you know, obviously the service branches are all looking at a, a number of different factors to help overcome. And, and you know, it's funny because if you ask my dad why he joined the Marine Corps, he'll say, because my older brother went off to Vietnam and I watched sure. him and his, his yep. my grandfather was in the Army. And Air admired Corps. him. Yes. And admired the, their service. Exactly. Wanted to be like them. Yep. Um, but let's let's just say that this uh recruitment issue becomes larger what what are your thoughts and considerations about uh, a mandatory service you know i'd and love I don't to mean that just in in terms of military service like i i'm not looking at sure. I'm looking at required mandatory sure. service compulsory natural national service um has a lot of attraction but, uh, and the buts are always not trivial. Um, you know, these aren't the days anymore like they were during the Depression where you could, everybody would go out West and live in tents and create our national forests or build our, our, our parks and all the rest of this, you know, for better or for worse. Uh, now you'd have to have all kinds of ancillary administrative and you know, the quality of life would have to be better, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but beyond that, I mean, just to have people serve and mandatorily, again, there, this would be compulsory. Um, can you find the meaningful tasks for them 
it, what's the drag on the economy of taking a year out of folks' lives, some of whom will perform productive, but some of whom may not. Right. Uh, and then do you really want people in the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Space Force that don't want to be there? I certainly do not. And oh, by the way, if they're only there for a year, how much can you do with them? I mean, you can't fight a war with individuals. They'll just have gotten through their basic and advanced training and joined their unit and basically just been through one rotation of the training and support and readiness cycles that are uh, traditional in most of our units. So there's a lot of issues here. Uh, there are people that have looked very, very hard at this. I'd also just offer that there's no shortage of opportunities for those who do want to serve. I mean, you have Teach for America, you have Code for America, you have the Peace Corps, and many, many other uh, various service opportunities out there. Again, it would be nice if everyone had this in the sense that you'd have that same effect that you have by serving in uniform, where you realize there's a lot of people in our country that aren't exactly like us and don't see the world exactly the same way we do. And yet, by golly, if they carry their rucksack and they have your right or left flank, that, you know, they're pretty good folks. Um, and so the the effect of that is very, very good, I think, um, that you have rich and poor, white and black, all you know, all of these different uh, elements that make up the melting pot that is uh, U.S. society. The challenge is always in the details, though. And as I've enumerated, I especially don't want to see, uh, again, a drafty force. When I actually did join the Army uh, after four years at West Point, we still had some draftees in the Army. And that's not something that I think we want to repeat. Um, we learned during Vietnam, I think, that Again, very short enlistments, constant rotation, the upheaval of all of that, by the way, also a flawed personnel policy of individual replacement instead of unit replacement. When your brother went to war, he went as a unit that had trained right. mostly together for the better part of a year, typically, and gone through the whole road to deployment. And then, yes, there were some individual replacements during the course if there were casualties and so forth. But by and large, that unit stayed together, it deployed together, fought together, it returned home together and was replaced by another uh, unit, not populated by individual uh, replacements. So a whole host of issues here. The surface attractiveness of some kind of compulsory national service is there without question. But every time I've tried to dig into the details of this, it just gets really complex, really fast. Uh, and this is before we've even talked about funding it. Right. Uh, and that would not be trivial, uh, given that you, depending on what these tasks are, um, there's going to be a whole huge amount of support and, and, and logistics and all the rest of that. And, you know, physicals before you go in, physicals when you come out, and, and again, all the other trappings of, service that are inescapable in today's day and age. So again, I, I'd love to see it. Countries that have mandatory service, um, you know, look at Finland, uh, Israel for the most part, although even there, there are elements of that society that do not serve and that is causing uh, increasing friction uh, within it. But certainly that effect of everyone all being together, um, you know, all being privates or what have you, 
there's a lot of goodness that comes out of that. It's just that I can't get past all of the administrative and logistic and uh, resource issues. Again, among them is uh, funding authorizations, appropriations, and all the other things that uh, are challenging on Capitol Hill. Yeah, that seems to be where the conversation kind of comes back to at the end of the day. I've I've been challenged to find anybody who's not in favor of it in theory, right? Right, exactly. But then when you start peeling back the layers, it's like, how how does this actually work? Um, Let's talk a little bit about today's veterans. Uh, You know, again, I was... I was born in a military family. My dad's a retired colonel in the Marine Corps. And I talk a lot about this understanding of, you know, and we get back to, I wasn't driven to join the military, but I understood from a very young age what service to this country meant, you know, and I grew up on military bases. I moved every two years. I was your classic military child. And, um, but I did not fully understand needs of veterans. I did not understand that the military community and landscape as it exists today until after Travis was killed. And now leading a national veteran service organization that works with thousands of veterans each and every day. um, I wonder from you, what do you think today's veteran is most in need of? And I've heard you answer the question like, what what can we do for today's veteran? And and you say everything and everything like we owe them a lot. Sure. And I believe that. But if if you could, well, it depends. Obviously, it depends from veteran to veteran. Right. Um, there are certain veterans who had life suffered life altering wounds. They obviously need uh, the care that is commensurate with that. Uh, there are other veterans that have unseen wounds, and again, we need to take care of that. But by and large, the bulk of our veterans. Uh, especially from the active force, because there's differences, again, between those that serve their veterans of the National Guard Reserve component and the active force. When it comes to National Guard, there's issues involving, you know, keeping their job back home when they were being deployed uh, several times in the course of, say, six years or so. Uh, And and that, but that's unique, again, to small communities, National Guard, etc. There are some other uh, issues that are more associated with some of the reserve, other reserve components. But if you look at the typical active duty veteran, um, they comprise an extraordinarily attractive uh, workforce, frankly. Um, you know, I'm a partner in one of the world's largest investment firms, KKR. Uh, we have about $520 billion under management around the world. We own 120 companies. They own other companies oftentimes. And then we have minority investments in another 100 we started about 11 years ago or so, and, I, and for the past 10 years, I've been the chairman of Vets at Work. Um, our companies have hired over 100,000 veterans and spouses. Uh, and after early, the early effort just to acquaint our company CEOs with what veterans bring to the workforce, uh, this was pushing on an open door. Uh, and very quickly, they couldn't get enough veterans. And so when we have hosted these annual uh, job fairs, essentially, for veterans, either at military bases or near military bases, um, we have no shortage of volunteer companies that want to come and recruit there. We typically will have 60 to 70. We'll often, often partner with other investment firms like ourselves. Um, so these are very, very attractive individuals. Um, 
what do we owe them? I, you know, what I think we owe them and what they should seek is not just a job, but a career opportunity. And the difference is that a career opportunity has the opportunity for uh, advancing, for promotion and so forth, for growth. Uh, they should, it should include a degree of job training and education. Again, our, our soldiers, sailors, airmen, marine, and now guardians, they don't necessarily have skills that directly uh, translate into jobs if you're know, an infantry officer, infantry soldier, whatever. Um, and so what they do need in many cases is, again, a degree of on-the-job training, uh, some skills, trainings, perhaps some education, mentoring, affinity groups, all the rest of this, and opportunity, as opposed to just a job. And that's what our veterans deserve. And that's what they should also seek. In some cases, it should be uh, further educational opportunities. Those are taking uh, advantage of the GI Bill. And then our colleges and universities should ensure that the Yellow Ribbon Program is, is in place so that if it doesn't cover all of the tuition and other expenses uh, that those universities do that. In fact, as I, I've had a number of academic appointments over the years, the one that I had at USC, I was also the faculty advisor to the student veteran uh, organization. And we ensured that every undergraduate college uh, stepped up to the plate and on, did the yellow ribbon program, because again, USC, a private university, the tuition far exceeded what's provided by the uh, GI Bill. Yeah. So again, it's a number of these different activities. I, again, I hate to say that it depends on that particular veteran. Obviously, you have to generalize at a certain point, as I have. And if you have these different categories, we owe certain things to certain veterans, depending on, uh, again, their individual needs. What we all should, should do, though, is recognize that in my view, these veterans comprise what I believe is America's new greatest generation. And the one who actually first stated that was Tom Brokaw, who wrote the book, The Greatest Generation, about the World War II generation, not just by, about what they did to keep the world safe for democracy and defeat fascism in the form of Nazi Germany and Japan, but also what they did when they came home and built the greatest economy, the greatest country the world has ever known. Certainly, we're a much smaller percentage, uh, the, the veterans of this generation, uh, than was the case, obviously, in World War II. But veterans are punching way, way above their weight class and of their numbers right. in the impact that they're having in any endeavor out there, uh, whether it is entrepreneurship, businesses, industries, um, government, politics, you name it, uh, veterans are very much uh, contributing, again, well beyond what their numbers would have predicted they would. And I think we should all be very proud of, of that, to see that we should recognize it, and we should acknowledge that they are, again, America's new greatest generation. And again, Tom Brokaw spent a day with us uh, when I was commanding the 101st Airborne Division up in Northern Iraq. He saw the myriad tasks in which we were engaged. I mean, there were some actual, if you will, combat tasks, uh, security tasks. There were nation-building tasks. There were basically political tasks. There were economic tasks. We were engaged in everything. I mean, we were re rebuilding the university, the hospital, the every ministry, the roads, the bridges, 
that had been damaged, the airfields, uh, the infrastructure, uh, even overseeing the wheat harvest and purchase. I mean, again, it didn't matter what it was. We were engaged in it. And he was really impressed by what he saw. And he grabbed me before he got on the helicopter to fly back to Baghdad and said, you know, that World War II crowd, they may have been the greatest generation, but surely these young men and women are America's new greatest generation. And I, I believe that then it resonated with me then, and we're still in the first year in Iraq. And it res resonates even more with me now, 20 years after the invasion of Iraq. Yeah, I love that. And um, my dad says that all all the time, you know, talks about the, the next gen greatest generation. And, and, and he will largely say, you know, he did 11 years active duty, 19 years in the reserve. And um, he will say very openly that he did less in his 30 years of of military service than this post 9-11 generation we're doing in in two and three years you know and, and well, we asked a lot of those who again volunteered particularly those that volunteered in the wake of 9-11 because they pretty quickly after keep in mind again that once this buildup began our men and women in uniform were deploying for a year, back for a year, out for a year, at least in the army, the Marine Corps, it was six months and six, six, and, you know, continue. And then they were extended during the period of the surge, 15 months for the army, seven months, I believe for the Marine Corps. So uh, again, it was a very, very constant rotation. And that's why it was so extraordinary to see so many of those in uniform re-enlist uh, to do it again. And again, the only explanation has to do with this sense of mission larger than self and what a great privilege it is to do that. And you can't take away those soft skills. Like you say, the infantry officer doesn't go into the corporate world and understand necessarily all the- Not right away. But, but, but again, of course, the intangible skills, right. uh, whether, whether commissioned or non-commissioned or uh, private soldier, uh, there are leadership skills, there are interpersonal skills, there's responsibility, um, there, there's a, a sense of accomplishing a mission and you don't give up until you have. Uh, there's a experience with real adversity, real challenge, yep. uh, tough adversaries, uh, tough conditions, you know, the Hindu Kush or the deserts or cities of Iraq. Uh, 115 degrees with a 30 knot wind every afternoon out where your brother was. So yeah, all of that. Uh, and those experiences, the expertise, uh, the, again, the various skills that were developed, they translate very well into the business world, albeit in some cases with some additional training and education and so forth. And again, that can either be done formally going back to school, uh, finishing college for many of those that that didn't, or some of the commission officers, all of whom typically had a college degree, but going to a business school or something like this, uh, or going to programs that seek these kinds of veterans. I mean, some of the big financial uh, institutions in New York, where my office is, for example, uh, Goldman and JP Morgan, all these others, they can't get enough veterans. And they have programs specifically for Sure. Uh, the veterans of, again, of different experience levels, different periods of service, different ranks and and so forth in leadership positions. Yeah, we're, we're, you know, most of our, we have 85 people that work for us now at the Travis Manning Foundation. And, and most of our, 
our job postings will say veteran preferred. And I had someone ask me one time, like, well, you, you do veteran preferred because you want veterans because you work with veterans. And I said, it has absolutely nothing to do with that. I know the value that a veteran brings to this sure. organization. Um, so yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, and then, you know, above all, we should also just do just the sheer values and commitment that veterans bring that have been inculcated in them. Um, you know, each of our service has these lists of values and, and, and principles and characteristics and all the rest of that attributes that we're seeking to develop. And of course, those are hugely valued in the, in the business world. Yeah. So let's, let's talk a little bit about what you're doing now. Um, you know, you obviously, uh, if, if, if you follow general Petraeus on LinkedIn every day, you are posting an update on, on the Ukraine war, you're, you're updating us on what's happening. Obviously, you know, Russia is one of our biggest adversaries. You are pushing for, um, continued aid to Ukraine to help. Do you believe that is because Russia in is, our interest, it, it, yeah, in our national interest. Uh, Russia is our adversary. It's NATO's adversary. We're a NATO member, um, and Ukraine is fighting that adversary, that mutual adversary, a uh, country that has brutally and without provocation invaded it. Um, so, but let me start by you know what I do is I'm incredibly fortunate um, to be able to do what I do, um, you know, having had, if you will, two careers already or a couple of, uh, of them, you know, uniform, CIA, uh, academic, uh, and so forth. But for 10 years, I've been the chairman of the KKR Global Institute, which, which I established to do geopolitical risk assessment as part of the diligence process. So when we're looking at buying a company or investing in a company, uh, increasingly now, over the course of the last 10 years, this geopolitical risk has become much more important. And we also integrate the macroeconomic and the environmental social governance issues analysis, because these all bear on the success, potential success of an investment. And we do this alongside the deal team that's looking at the various financial and, and industrial and whatever sector uh, elements they're focused on. Uh, to see whether this can be a success. And again, what we do is we buy a company, a private company, typically, we help it grow. And then some years later, we either take it public, uh, put it on the stock market, uh, or we uh, sell it at a much higher valuation than we bought. Uh, and that generally is quite an impressive formula. Again, it's why in my time alone, we've gone from $83 billion under management to $520 billion. So it's been an extraordinary period. But this geopolitical risk component has become ever more important as the world has transformed from one of benign globalization 10 years ago to one of renewed great power rivalries uh, 10 years later. And that means that there are many, many big more issues that can create challenges for a particular investment. Plus, there are many more restrictions uh, on investing, for example, in China. There are entities lists, there's dual use technologies, there are executive orders. So there are a variety of legal complexities that have grown dramatically. And then also, we want to be a responsible American-based company uh, in, in investing as well. We've de-risked the, the portfolio over the years for Ukraine, Russia, others. 
Um, and we do a great deal to determine whether we should invest in a certain company, a certain country, a certain region, um, in addition to looking at specific companies. So that's the, the, the core function, if you will. That's my day job. But then obviously, given my background as a, a soldier and then a spy master and also as an academic right now, I teach at Yale and the Kissinger Fellow at the Jackson School of Global Affairs at Yale. Um, in its course on great power rivalry. So all the other activities that I do, I try to ensure that they will in, improve, um, refine, uh, keep fresh my intellectual capital for this principal focus. Yeah. Uh, but then I've also just co-authored a book. It comes out uh, the 1st of October. Actually, this Sunday will be the release in the UK, 17 October in the United States. It's titled Conflict, the Evolution of warfare from 1945 to Ukraine, uh, very intellectually stimulating, a lot of hard work co-authored with Andrew Roberts, the great British historian and biographer. I'm on the speaking circuit. I'm on the board of a couple of companies, strategic advisor for two more. I'm also a personal investor. A lot of the partners at KKR are in startups. In addition to our KKR investments, uh, I've invested in about 27 startups over the last 10 years, many of them multiple rounds. And I just find that, again, intellectually stimulating. It helps with intellectual capital for where we might do larger investments. KKR doesn't do venture investments. They're too small for a firm that's as big uh, as ours is. So you put all of this together and then support for a number of think tanks and uh, a number of veterans organizations. Uh, and it's a very full and again, fulfilling, intellectually stimulating, it's hard work worth doing, which is what Teddy Roosevelt said was life's greatest gift. And, you know, usually home on the weekends and uh, so that we can see our kids and, and, and the three soon to be four grandkids. So very, very fortunate, but you know, as usually, they don't do charity on Wall Street. They do do charity, but they don't do it, you know, for a period of time for an individual. Right. Um, you have to produce. You have to, again, demonstrate that you are going to be able to help the company when it's doing investments. Once it's made the investments, we help the companies when they run into trouble. And then obviously in, in working with our major investors, the people whose money we're actually investing, although we have a lot of our own now on our own balance sheet uh, that we we're usually the biggest investor in each one of our deals. So it's, again, a wonderful uh, existence. Uh, we live in Arlington, Virginia, but I have an apartment up in New York right next to where our office is in Hudson Yards. Uh, spent a tremendous amount of time on the road all around the world. Um, but again, it's very rewarding. It's uh, it's stimulating and it's still fun. Uh, and if it wasn't those three, I wouldn't still be doing it. And I still do have time, let me reassure those who remember my emphasis on physical fitness still find time to to work out every day. Yes. Yeah, well, you say and and that's one of your you have your was it is it 12 lessons of living? I forget. I think you have 12. Oh, there's various people rules, that have distilled these things. Rules yeah. For living. Well, one of your rules for living somewhere I saw it was physical health and how closely it's related to mental fitness. Your physical fitness and mental fitness. And I actually just shared in the last um podcast interview I was doing, we were talking about, talking about this a little bit that my dad always would say to me, um, wh whatever was happening with me, you know, I broke up with my boyfriend. I got a F on a test, no matter what it was, it was go for a run. You know, I broke my arm, oh. go for a run. anything could be healed by going for a run. And, and it took me a long time to understand what he meant 
um, when he shared that with me. Uh, it was hard for 15-year-old Ryan to comprehend. I totally get it now. Physical fitness matters. Um, yeah. Obviously, health and well-being matters. I mean, even in the combat zones, in every one of those assignments, we found time to run. Um, and it depended on which, you know, which job, whether it was the first, very first thing very early in the morning or if it was uh, sometimes later in the day, which was not easy. Again, when that sun is pounding on you in Baghdad uh, and it's 110 or 15 degrees, but we still got out and did that. Plus, we typically had little fitness centers wherever it was that we were. So, no, it was a very important part of the daily battle rhythm. Uh, and But we always sought to multitask. And so if I was on a stationary bike, I'd be going through the overnight intel book. If we were running, we would bring people in to run with me, actually, from this sprawling base where the headquarters was. And, you know, we'd try to find majors or some lieutenant colonels uh, that weren't out on operations that day so that I could actually pick their brain. Yeah. Uh, find out how their unit was doing, what are their challenges, what's frustrating them, what lessons have they learned that we should share with others, all of this. So we would we would talk usually for the first three or four miles. But then at some point in every one of those runs, we, these were usually about 6.2, it was roughly a 10K, uh, the distance that we did when I was a four-star there. And But at a certain point in time, it did become a race. And so you had to really amp it up a bit. Of course. And, you know, what's interesting too um, you know, you obviously saw it so much throughout your career, your time at West Point. Uh, rucking has become very mainstream now. I don't know if you're following kind of the rucking phenomenon, but it is it is largely taking over the civilian world as the way to find maximum. And, and I've gotten into it. I actually rucked the Marine Corps Marathon and I liked rucking it better than running it. Um, That's you know, a long, long. It was road. long. Yes. But we were way ahead of we were way ahead of America on that. We embraced rucking way, 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 way back, actually. One hundred percent. Yes. So um, okay, I have two more questions for you. You know, we didn't talk a lot about uh your your early military career, but one of the things is uh early on, you were actually shot in the chest. It was a life-threatening uh injury. And they talk about a lot a lot of what I've read is that you recovered at lightning speed. Later on in your career as a colonel, you broke your pelvis uh, with, a, star, actually. Yeah, yeah, with, a, with a parachute malfun malfunction. You're a prostate cancer survivor. You know, when when we talk about adversity and I talk about a lot, you know, overcoming and a lot of my challenges have been around grief. You know, after losing Travis three years later, his best friend and, and Naval Academy roommate was killed. Two years after that, my mom died of cancer. So I, I feel like a lot of the the challenges I've overcome have been grief. Yours have been really kind of physical, personal challenges to you. And I'm sure there's a host of other things. What, how does resilience play a role in, in overcoming, you know, the challenges that are going to be thrown at each and every one of us? And, you know, what does, it's kind of a two-part, like, and and what does living a resilient life look like for you? Well, I think it includes, again, pretty substantial physical fitness and, you know, just decent health and, and so forth and well-being. Um, and that helps a great deal. I mean, when I got shot, this, I was a battalion commander, actually, it was a lieutenant colonel. We had, we were famous for these very aggressive live fires. In fact, so, uh, the one star was out with me, General Jack Keene, who went, went on to four stars. We see him on Fox News a lot. Great mentor of mine for decades now. 
And he came out, this is Saturday morning. He's out there actually to walk with us uh, in this very aggressive live fire. After we would already, by the way, talk about rucking, we got up, I think it was around three that morning, and we, we rucked 12 miles with all combat gear and then went right into a dry fire, uh, did a quick after action review, loaded up ammo, and, and then went into the, the live fire. And a soldier uh, knocked out a bunker with a grenade, spun out of the bunker and tripped. And, and when he fell, we think he tensed up and squeezed with his finger on the trigger and round went right through my chest. So it was great training for the medics. Uh, they got to, you know, do the, the uh, soldier's manual task for sucking chest wound, which it was. Uh, they managed to leave. I didn't, it didn't hit a, an artery, so I didn't bleed out right away. And then medevac uh, crew came in pretty quickly got me to the post hospital there they put a chest tube in with no anesthesia by the way they just literally cut an x in your side pull it apart and jam it in but now you're going to live because there's suction and you're not going to suffocate in your own fluids then they put me back in the helicopter flew me to vanderbilt for thoracic surgery they cut you all open and take out the bits of rib and they cauterized a, an, an artery that had been nicked but not not severed by the way the surgeon was Dr. Bill Frist, who would later be the Senate Majority Leader. Um, so I often used to note that I was dying to meet Bill Frist. Uh, but, and it was great later on because when I was a two-star, I couldn't get the message through to some folks candidly. He came out to see us because we were from uh, Fort Campbell, Kentucky also, as Tennessee is the majority of the post actually. And he was obviously from Tennessee. McConnell was from Kentucky. So we had a lot of support uh, in the senior legislative body. Um, but no, I, you know, I, I was in extraordinary condition actually at that time. I think I was running, you know, two miles on a track, which slows you down, usually costs you 20, 30 seconds because you have turns, um, well under 1030, uh, at that time and, and close, very close at times to, to 10. Um, and that helped a great deal. The truth is that I came back too fast because then I had very serious plantar fascia issues. Um, and they had to put me in a cast over that because I wouldn't stop. So again, but I've had a number of injuries and more recently, candidly, I've ruptured the quadricep tendons in both knees uh, and sort of sort of free things. And that's what allows your knee to do this is it goes over the top. This is not a knee replacement. You know, you're not up walking the next day. This is reconstructing that tendon. Yeah. them had to do it twice. Look, you just got to have the mental toughness to get back at it um, and you know, in some cases to do pretty serious physical therapy, which had to be done here be, to regain the flexibility and the strength. I'm still working on that, actually. Uh, but I'm on the bike, um, you know, every day uh, at the very least and and doing a lot of other calisthenic stretching and so forth. And again, I think it's just all part. You have to have a culture of mental and physical toughness. It's what we seek to create, actually, in our you know, best units. Um, that unit that I was privileged to command as a battalion commander in the 101st of the brigade in the 82nd Airborne. These were known for being very, very competitive organizations. And we sought to win everything that we entered. Uh, we didn't always, but we won a large number. And beyond that, I mean, we had, at the end of my two years as a battalion commander, we had such a strong ranger program that we had three times the number of rangers of any other battalion uh, in that division. Um, so it's all part of this. It, you create a culture, uh, you identify the most important elements, the, the, the big five in my case, fit, physical fitness was one of those. Live small unit drills at live fire exercises was another. Uh, and then you have programmatics around them, you have resourcing around them, you have standards that have to be met. 
there are rewards, there's incentives, there are penalties, all the rest of this. And you have to be very, very serious about it. And, and we were. Um, and that created people actually wouldn't come to that unit. Uh, there was self-selection out of the unit, which was great. We didn't want people who didn't feel that they might be able to meet the standards in it. Um, and that's what you want to create. And then there becomes this, there comes this just enormous pride in the organization where you could challenge them on anything. It didn't matter what it was. I mean, it was AUSA Association of the U.S. Army membership one time, the General Keene, again, he had my number. He could press the competitive button. And he said, you think you can win that thing, uh, Dave? And so we ended up with more AUSA members than we had soldiers in the battalion. Don't ask me how we did that. But, uh, so that was no contest on that one. But they were proud to do it. It wasn't arm twisting. It was just, you know, at a certain point in time, you just challenged the members of that unit uh, and they would rise to every occasion. So, um, again, that's it collectively, but it's also individually. And look, I had lots of setbacks and hard, you know, M mistakes personally, collectively, the units that you are privileged to lead, uh, individuals make really bad decisions at times that can have strategic consequences. But a sergeant who shot at pages of a Koran on the 25 meter range at the combat outpost, and of course it was found by a host nation worker. And you know, within a few hours, I was apologizing to the prime minister on camera, the president, President Bush, who I saw yesterday, by the way, in New York City, still looking good. Um, uh, called and apologized as well. So again, but what you have to do after every one of these setbacks, mistakes, missteps, whatever, uh, is you've got to sort of take stock, dust yourself off, make amends if, if that is called for, examine why something happened, determine how you can reduce the chances of it happening again, and then get back on your feet, get your rucksack back on, on your shoulders and put one foot in front of the other and repeat the process and get going. Um, and so again, there, there are mental aspects to that. There are physical aspects to that. Um, there's just reasoning aspects to it. Um, and what you can't do um, is ever consider the alternative to continuing on. And that's just something that none of our veterans should ever, you've got to push that out of your mind uh, a lot of us have faced difficult circumstances and that might, you know, enter the edges. You can't let it. Um, and we have to be on the lookout for those who might be uh, considering that option as well. Absolutely. Yeah. One last question for you. Sure. Um, it's kind of a tough one, but um, well, maybe it's not. Uh, what do you think is the greatest challenge and to America's national security right now? Well, in, in the near term, it's uh, actually having a budget. Um, you know, we're going to shut down an awful well, lot of, you know, it's a very near term. It's a speed yeah. bump. By the time this airs, that presumably will be in our rear view mirror. One Hopefully, yeah. Um, I think there, there are external challenges that are very, very considerable. Um, the relationship with China, this is one that would all like to see be as mutually beneficial as is absolutely possible. But right now, the National Security Advisor in the U.S. accurately describes it as severe competition. Obviously, have to make sure that competition doesn't turn into outright conflict. There's a lot we get to do about that and have to do and will do and are doing uh, about that. There are other challenges around the world. We have to keep more plate spinning than any other country in the world. Uh, in addition to that China plate that's bigger than all the others, 
There's a North Korea plate. There's a Russia plate. There are individual Islamist extremist plates. There's cyber threat plates. There's domestic populism in other countries that has effect uh, on geopolitics and so forth. Um, there's climate-related uh, uh, plates, if you will. I mean, the intensity of storms, of fires, of flooding, and all the rest of that obviously have grown uh, as the climate has changed. Um, and then we have challenges at home, obviously. And among those, certainly, is this uh, hyper-partisanship that seems to preclude progress in, in some of our governmental entities where their compromise has become a bad and you know it's not in the vocabulary uh and yet that's what we have to do uh to move forward yeah. and we have again we've seen um the the growing apart uh again of the center uh and so forth and i think that's very very challenging it might um, be the biggest plate that we have right now it, it could be uh it, in fact you it certainly Arguably, it may well be. Um, and we've got to come together uh, on issues. Uh, and, and again, you can have disagreements. Uh, they should be principled. It should be reasoned. It should be respectful and so forth. But at the end of the day, again, nobody's going to get all that they want on either side of these debates. And so we're, but you have to make some decisions to move forward. And of course, we're at a moment like that right now, which illustrates the challenges that this presents, uh, and then the consequences of this uh, can be quite severe. Uh, so that's a huge issue. Um, it is a challenge to our country as we know it, to our democracy, and, and I hope that we can come to grips with that. The vast majority of Americans, I think, do want us to do that, um, but there certainly are others who who see that very differently. So. I think that's something. And what's unique, again, about having served in uniform is that everyone does come together and you do uh, experience this common, this mission uh, to which all are committed, uh, which is, again, much larger than self uh, and is the privilege uh, to perform. And I hope that we can come together, you know, animated by that kind of idea even while having individual differences that, that very clearly uh, can and, and should exist, but shouldn't prevent us from getting on with what it is that we need to do uh, as a country, as our government, um, the individual elements uh, of our society. General Petraeus, I think that's the perfect place to end. And and I say it all the time, you know, our our, our military is the great equalizer in the way that we can look at, um, you know, how a group of diverse individuals come together to accomplish a, a, a single goal, you know? And so, yeah, I mean, just let me end just really quickly, you yeah. know, people in combat in particular, especially in the brotherhood of the close fight where your, your brother was, um, you know, what they're, what they care about, they don't care about, again, the color of the race, the, religion, all of the, any of these other um, differences, if you will, they just care about whether that individual on their right and left uh, has, has their back and feel very strongly about having the back of, of them as well. Um, you know, there's a lot of 
question, why do people fight? I, I think there's two questions here. One is, why do you serve? That has to do, again, with this mission larger than self and a variety of other factors. But why people fight, um, it's about that person on their right and left and fiercely, uh, fiercely uh, not wanting to let that individual down while also having enormous trust and confidence in those individuals that they won't let you down. And that's what really, again, animates those in the toughest moments in the brotherhood of the close fight, which includes women, to be sure. That's what we've got to constantly remember. Um, and that's, as you say, it's the great equalizer. Uh, it doesn't matter who that person is. Um, what matters is whether that person is going to perform his or her mission. I love that. Thank you so much. It, it's great truly, to be with you. truly an honor to have you on with me today. And um, we'll certainly be uh, linking to your new book that is coming out soon. Please. And, um, available for pre-order. Available for pre-order. We will put the link up. Uh, appreciate your insight you. uh, and everything that you have today to, to say. Great Thank you so to be much. with you. And, and thanks again for your family sacrifice. Thank you so much.